Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. This episode is a 10-page podcast all about one of his short stories. Get ready to enjoy our remarks. Hello and welcome back to Barks Remarks. Um, I'm Mark Severino. I'm a grown man who still loves duck comics. I've got a returning host who um, hopefully is growing a little more fond of them. Can you introduce yourself? Reintroduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sarah Santiago. And this episode, I'm your resident lemonade expert. Awesome. Um, You're also kind of like my resident uh, Gladstone Gander go-to at this point. Um, We're going to be doing the most famous Gladstone 10-pager stories today. And oh, I should mention that this is one of our 10-page podcast episodes. We're stepping out of adventure story mode, and uh, we're going to be covering one of Bark's most famous 10-pagers, which is called Wintertime Wager. And this one is notable for a couple of reasons, but but mainly because it is the introduction of Gladstone Gander, that famous lucky cousin of Donald's that infuriates him so much and is such a good foil for the um, almost always down on his luck Donald. And at this point, you know, he's very fresh, he's very new and shiny, and he does not have his characteristic good luck. But uh, but he's still a good foil for Donald in this story, I think. And um, Sarah, this is also going to be serving as our Christmas episode. Yay! So uh, um, happy Christmas, Merry Holidays, etc. to you, whatever, um, whatever type of holiday you prefer. Over here, they call it the festive season. There's no argument over, oh, but some people celebrate this and some people celebrate this. They just say for the festive season. Yeah, it's really nice. That is a nice, inclusive way of doing it. Um, yeah. I like that. Over there is Scotland, as a little reminder. I'm I'm recording in the States, in um, in Pittsburgh. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on this podcast. But um, this is a Christmas episode in passing reference only, right? Because at the very at the very beginning, they're going to mention that it's Christmas morning, and then pretty much nothing else about it is Christmassy. But technically this story gets to serve as our our Christmas episode on the podcast calendar. And um, I, this, this is such a fun one to talk about. Um, for the 10-page podcast, these are, I give myself permission to let them be a little bit less researched, a little bit more free-flowing. You, of course, m- always are empowered to ignore that. And research as much as you as much as you want. I did look up a little bit about um, stuff like uh, what do they call it? Polar bear clubs and and um, drinking, you know, water drinking and stuff. And I think you did too. But um, but yeah, this is not going to be as detailed. Let's see comic details. We are stepping back in time from our regular schedule just a little bit. This one came out. I think I think we're at the beginning of the fifties right now in the podcast schedule. And this one came out in January of 1948. And it was published in Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, number 88, a very long running title. 
that had a lot of these great stories. And um, this is, I'll mention, I usually mention at the end, but I'll mention at the beginning, this is one of the very highest ranked by the community for his 10-page stories. I, I think if you break them out between the adventure length and the 10 pagers, this is the second best rated because it gets a 7.8 on index out of 10. Good for um, 90th out of all 41,000 some Disney comics. And, you know, very, it's, it's one of the only two that I think hit in the top 100, Sarah. Um, I, I've got to assume that some of it is just a little bit of grade inflation because it does have Gladstone's first appearance. So it stands out to people. But, but I do find this one like very funny, like laugh out loud funny at times. Um, before we go into it, what's your just overall impression of this story? Well, I'm me. So the kind of toxic masculinity stands out. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's fair because this one is this one is entirely premised on this sort of like macho bluster um contest right competition between these two cousins and, and you can certainly read it as very off-putting because it has these like ramifications and it is pretty toxic but if you read this one i think is kind of just a slapstick commentary on bluster and braggadocio i i find this one pretty funny so i'm i'm looking forward to getting your overall impressions um hearing if there's anything individual about it that works for you and uh yeah, let's uh, let's enjoy this seasonal story. Yeah. So um, I, I'll mention, too, that, you know, the, these 10 pagers were almost universally untitled. They never called it Wintertime Wager until decades later when, like, fans and and, and Barks um, devotees kind of got together and assigned retroactively names so that they could talk about these stories. And I just, I love to, to picture Sarah, some kind of like council of scholars sitting down and, and mulling them over. And I, Wintertime Wager is a great name for this one. It works, uh, I think it works very well. Um, because on page one, we open and it is just about the, the winterest that you will ever see right? It is kind of that classic wintry suburban day. The, the neighborhood is snow covered and we've got the, men, the nephews mentioning that this must be the coldest Christmas ever. And Donald is like sitting in his easy chair. He is the picture of coziness and warmth and he is determined to enjoy his Christmas day, um, being warm by the fire, enjoying his bonbons. The nephews are, do you mind telling us a little bit about how they're characterizing the cold well the kids are reading the paper while donald smacks on his bonbons and they've read that the penguin club that swims every day of the year even in the winter to be you know is the assumption has called off today's swim for being too cold yeah i like that little reference do you did you ever hear about those i think polar bear club is their real name did you hear about those in the news growing up Oh, yeah, they've, you know, they're kind of just they pop up in pop culture here and there. There was an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I remember, where um, they all go swim uh, on a cold day and in various other TV shows or cartoons or even, you know, news stories, you know, the, the feel good stories at the end yeah. of the hour. It's, it's a go to human interest story. I don't know if this is something that is common around the world, but in the United States, um, I, I'm sure it's worldwide. There's these groups of, 
of devoted people who love to swim, especially in the wintertime. And that's their shtick swimming every day of the year. And I, I like that little, I think this works really nicely as foreshadowing, right? And so the nephews are really fixated on, on how cold it is and they want to know. And so they pester Donald to go outside and check their outside thermometer. And, uh, and he does, and he learns that the temperature outside is 35 below yeah. zero. And so he runs back in um, just desperate to get out of the cold. I do want to point out that 35 below zero, like about 32 below zero is where the Celsius and the Fahrenheit scales kind of match up. They uh -huh. sync up around there. So 35 below zero could be for us Americans, it could be Fahrenheit for literally everyone else in the whole world. It could be Celsius. It basically is the same thing. So I think that's a very clever use. I do wonder with it being that cold, where are they? Are they like in Minnesota or something? Oh yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I can't remember if Barks directly, I think he did reference it. So Duckburg is in the fictional state of Calisoda. And, oh. and Alice Soda is, so a lot of this, uh, the story geography of these will alternately match up to, um, to what's considered Northern California, like the, either the Northern Bay Area or the very north of California, or that sort of Minnesota for the, um, for the wintertime stories. So there's kind of this general, I think there's been at least one reference to the actual state of Calisota, but someone might fact check me on that. But, but the fan kind of agreement is that they live in, that there's a Calisota that occupies Northern California and Duckburg is in a sort of bay near the north of that because it can match both these winter and summer set stories. So yeah, it's very convenient. Yeah, we're we're in Calisota and mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and Donald Donald is um he races back into the warmth of his living room and he's shivering and they get this unexpected knock on the door because, you know, who's out when it's minus 35. I, I should mention that's comically cold, right? I don't think it, I think it, that that's like generational, once in a generation cold for most areas of the United States. Oh yeah. And so the, um, the unexpected visitor is our very first appearance ever of Gladstone Gander. And uh, he looks a little bit different than what you've seen before, but he's definitely got his characterization. Could you describe Gladstone for us a bit, Sarah? Uh, he is wrapped up in the winteriest of winter clothes. He's got a jacket that has a fur-lined collar. He's got a cap with a with a bill that uh, and earmuffs. And that bill, as well as his own, are just frozen over with frost. He's kind of amorphous under all those layers. Right, but. But he's interestingly, he's still got this kind of smirking grin, even though he must be frigid because he is there for, for a certain errand. And I like here how you can kind of see Donald's reaction. Like he's either, he either knows what's coming or he's processing something half forgotten that's just starting to creep. Either way, we know that he's not happy to see his cousin and that he's probably never happy to see his cousin. And, and Gladstone announces his business, which is that he's there to take possession of Donald's house. <laughs> and, and Donald is outraged and, you know, thinks that he's full of it. 
of course, until Gladstone presents him with this note, this contract of sorts that he has signed in the past. And um, Sarah, can you tell us just the contents of the note? I, Donald Duck, agree to go swimming in Frozen Bear Lake on Christmas Day or forfeit my house to Gladstone Gander. And Signed, Donald Duck. And Gladstone prompts him, you know, do, do you remember writing this? And now Donald is admitting that, yes, he remembers it. But uh, but hey, it was a, on a hot day in July. And and I, I, I tried, I reread this a bunch of times. And I tried to decide if Donald was like already dreading this the instant he saw Gladstone. Or if now he's kind of remembering it, if it's kind of coming to him. On the, on the very next page, you know, Gladstone is talking talking about how he was bragging at, at that summer picnic in question. And Donald said, oh, he, he, I'd had too many lemonades. Um, so I'm wondering if the implication is that, you know, maybe they were spiked lemonades or something. Um, but, but either way, that's also a nice little, a nice little bit of foreshadowing what will happen later. And Gladstone is going to hold him to his summer bragging you know, flight of fancy. He is going to make him go outside to, I, I think their house has been retconned into being right on this lake, right? For the purposes of this story. Their their home is on Frozen Bear Lake. Um, I, I think in some other countries, the story was actually titled Frozen Bear Lake or something for the purpose of that. We, we kind of get the nephews checking in, talking about how, man, Uncle Donald's mouth is always getting him into trouble like this. And they're, they're not as um, they're not as distraught as I picture they should be, Sarah. So maybe this is oh, kind of, they know they're going to figure it out. Yeah, that probably some of it is that they they know that they can come to the rescue and they're probably used to him getting in this kind of jam. What is that self-efficacy? They have a high sense of self-efficacy. Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, Donald is just utterly pleading with Gladstone, who is stoically and cruelly demanding that he get out of the house. So Donald's realized the nephews are, are telling him, you know, you're stuck. You've got to do this. So he's getting set to do the deed. He's going to go swimming in Frozen Bear Lake. The nephews are stuck with the grunt work of um, carving their way through the ice. It's pretty, it's pretty thick. I, I I wonder, Sarah, about how frozen that lake would be in minus 35. I mean, it depends on the weather of the previous few weeks, of course. That's true. I like the little old-timey, uh, semi-old-timey bathing suit that he puts on. Yeah, and the kids have um, the the old-fashioned ice block tongs with the points at the end. Yeah, that's right. You don't see a but lot. Those of are pretty thick ice blocks. Yeah, they're and they're very clearly equipped for this kind of work. I guess we should point out this is one of those rare times where Donald Duck wears some form of pants. <laughs> <laughs> for modesty's sake in the lake yep and i just love um how they they introduce him you know come forth your loudmouthed lordship your bath is ready it's a very funny panel to me a very funny image i did want to point out on this page yeah um gladstone says i'll not forget it is that kind of some formal way of speaking American English? Yeah, you're right. That's kind of an odd construction there. I think it's just meant to be in reference to, you know, Donald's let's forget it. And he's saying, I'll not forget it. But, but you're right. It is a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit formal. Gladstone kind of presents himself as a little bit formal, right? He's got, he's got, uh, he looks a little more proper, a little more dapper 
and his cousin. He's a little bit taller. I had another guest host, um, Warren Harmon, who had pointed to me the the Hollywood actor that Gladstone is likely modeled after. And I can't oh. remember his name, but um, when I when I followed it, I was like, oh yeah, you're totally right. Dang, it's just bringing up Paul F. Tompkins. He voiced him in the newest DuckTales. I love, I love Paul F. Tompkins. Paul F. Tompkins is everywhere. Oh yeah, and, and he's awesome. Oh shoot, who is that guy? Unfortunately, I'd probably have to listen to the episode, but I'll, I'll see if I can find it later because it's, it's pretty cool. He's very clearly modeled after this like 30s, 40s heartthrob actor. Yeah, no, I think I think the actor's definitely American. Gladstone's definitely meant to be American. Okay. I did also want to note that the kids are, you know, your boss is ready, B-A-W-T-H, and calling him your your loudmouth lordship. You know, we we use British English to kind of denote it's a shorthand for like, oh, I'm being fancy. Or, you know, in this case, mockingly fancy. And I was wondering um, if you had any idea how that was translated in other languages, because they might not have that reference where British English is considered more posh or proper. Yeah, that's true. I, I again, it's the 10 page podcast. I give myself permission not to do <laughs> too much research, but um, I know that, you know, different translators will have tackled this differently and some of them will have probably done it with a pretty loving job so anyway on the next page the next page is all about his initial attempts to actually do the deed to jump in the water and swim just enough to to cover the terms of the bet gladstone's not even going to come out and watch he's going to um, stay in the comfort of what he imagines to to almost be his house. I think that the illustrations here are all so funny of Donald doing his best to hop in and do this little swim. What do you think, Sarah? Could you uh, could you do this to save your house? I know you would never put yourself in this position, but <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this, and I um, even in the summertime, I am someone who has to even in the summertime in Arizona. I'm someone who cannot jump in a pool, right? Um, I need to stick my toe in. I need to go in slowly. I'm not impulsive. I'm not brave in that way about sensory things, especially water temperature. But, you know, if, if the situation were, oh, I need to jump in and save an animal or a person, could I do it? I would like to hope I could. But if it were just to say that I've done it, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I. I would do it, right, to save my house. I wouldn't love it, but but you know, you, going in gradually though, that's that's the death sentence. You can't you can't dip your toe in like Donald's going to try initially there. Yeah, you can't do that. So he fails as we know he's about to. He he has to rush back into his house um to warm himself up. And the nephews on the next page, they they convene to try and figure out what they're going to do. I I love how resourceful and determined and just doing what they need to do the nephews are in this little story um what do they resolve they're they're gonna try sarah uh they've acquired they've somehow for children acquired a tractor and they're gonna pull him in 
Yeah, yeah, they rent a tractor and tow rope. And uh, I, I like the implied violence that it took for them to get the harness in the house. Um, we don't see them subduing him, but uh, but we see him being pulled out on the tow line. And and at this point, he's not like rational at all, right? He's all he's all id. His brain is just <laughs> like turned on that flight, turned into flight mode. And so he's straining against the the snow tractor, refusing to be pulled in. He he manages to stall out the tractor and is just pulling desperately back to get to the house. And the nephew that's driving the tractor is like terrified because he's pulling it back towards the water. And he he ends up on the next page having to cut the tow line loose. And and they're relieved that they managed to at least save the tractor, right? So they're not on the hook for that. Donald is, is just desperately trying to warm himself in the house. And the nephews are like out of options. So we transition to Gladstone is confronting him with the contract and demanding that he sign over the deed to his house. And he does so. Um, any thoughts at this point on, on the duck's plight? I'm thinking mostly of the nephews because, you know, Donald has clearly brought this on himself. You know, I'm a little bit curious about Donald just giving up. What does he think he's going to do? He has these three nephews he needs to take care of and house. Is he just going to try to beg to rent or be allowed to live there? Like, what? what is he going to do? Also, homeownership, oh, something our, our generation and younger um, are a little bit envious of. We have yeah. no idea what Donald does for work right? Do we, do we know what Donald does for work? So it's a, it's a long running thing that we're going to see him take up just dozens and dozens of jobs. And it gives us the idea that he's, he's one of these like jack of all trades, master of none. And, and that's, you know, the comedy is that he, he doesn't have a long running job, but he is always, he is always down on his luck and he is usually looking for something that he can do. And, and yet he owns a home that he can sign over to his cousin. Oh, that's the dream. It yeah. must have been nice to live in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, yeah, home ownership was, uh, there weren't quite as many roadblocks to it. That's for sure. And, and obviously everything is really heightened for comic purpose, right? Like it's oh, yeah. ridiculous that these two cousins are... I have this kind of relationship. This is a terrible family relationship. <laughs> Gladstone, you know, he he's putting these young ducks out in the street on the coldest day in, in maybe 20 years. So it doesn't work if you think too much about it. But if you view it as kind of slapstick, almost like the Disney cartoons, you know, it, it, it works better. Yeah. And so... I think it's interesting that we get that worst case outcome. There's nothing that saves the day before Donald signs, right? Like he does sign his house over. Um, but at this point, we do get the little turning point on the story where Daisy shows up. And I, I love Daisy's appearance when she comes in. Uh, I think she just, I think she looks kind of notably fashionable for, for this story, you know, that's generally geared towards boys. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You mind describing? She looks adorable. Yeah. She looks so adorable. Her little, her bright eyes, her cute jacket with the, it's very Santa-like, right? It's red with the fur trim. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's adorable. You just got to love Daisy right there. Yeah. And, and, and I think that this story is, is the best that Daisy is ever going to come out in these comics. I, she's great in this one. You know, she's witty. She's clever. She 
you and I were talking earlier and you pointed out that she's definitely enabling Donald in oh. this situation. And that's true, but in, in the context of this sort of slapstick situation, she's the smartest one in the room. And she, um, I feel like she is allowed to be represented the way a male character usually would be in these stories. And unfortunately, this is one of those very rare times because most of the time Barks is going to have her as like a foil for Donald, either like someone who's very shrewish or as as like a prize in a competition sort of between Donald and Gladstone. Here and there, she gets, you know, better depictions, but this is like the height of Daisy. I, I really like Daisy in this story. Yeah, so Daisy comes in and she has um, her uh, this contract of her own, right? So she saw what was happening with the bet on the swimming in the cold the lake on the coldest day of the year and she has a contract of her own that she signed with Gladstone at the same picnic and it says um I Gladstone Gander agree to drink two gallons of lemonade in one hour or give Donald Duck's house back to him she was banking on Donald Duck not being able to swim and giving up his home and for <laughs> forfeiting his home where he was raising his siblings kids and she she's the one that figured out an out for him that I think she the fact that she knew that this was going to happen that she predicted it but she still obviously loves him I think I feel like that's kind of a mix of unconditional love right I love you even though you are this person that I predict will be homeless with the three children. But it's it's also, when you look at it from a relationship point of view, it's kind of the epitome of codependency, right? Donald is pretty fantastic at making his problems everyone else's problem. Yeah. He, he, the kids usually have to solve his problems. In this case, Daisy is solving his problems. And what I thought was kind of especially interesting is that the, at this point, codependency wasn't a thing that they really had studied or, or talked about, Recognized. Um, but it, it basically came out of relationships with alcoholics and kind of their rescuers, you know, the people who would clean up after the messes, you know, we, we with the lemonade. Um, oh, I had too much lemonade. You know, maybe we were thinking that was an allusion to alcohol. Maybe it was spiked or something like that. Like this fits perfectly. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if there's a little bit of a parable for alcoholism in, in here. <laughs> but I, I love how this, the, the comedic timing in this one is so good, right? Like her arrival parallels Gladstone's arrival so nicely, where you just see Donald is just happy to see her, right? He's lost his house, but even though he's lost his house, he's still very happy to see her. He doesn't know that she's there to save the day. And then Gladstone has this, his own dawning realization. And I, we're not meant to think about this too much, obviously. This is gag, this is a gag story. This is comedic, but I love I love the thought process that Daisy wrote it in. She wrote her contract not proactively, but reactively, right? For the comic mm -hmm. effect. I'm I'm gonna swoop in after the fact. Maybe it'll help Donald learn his lesson, but I'm gonna let him go through this pain and torture before because she could have wrote written it preventatively, right? Like I Gladstone Gander will not take his house 
Um, I will not subject Donald to this unless I can first demonstrate that I can do do that. So so um, yeah, you set it up. He's got a he's got a drink. What is it? Two gallons of lemonade in one hour or give back his house. And the nephews are ecstatic. They go into the kitchen to make the lemonade. I like that element of it where they have to make the lemonade and they conveniently have as many lemons as they would need. <laughs> you have to do a little bit of hand waving, but but I don't mind it at all. The, them running in and saying, bring on the lemonade is it's just very, adorable. It is very cute. I did want to talk about lemonade. Um, I went down a lemonade hole. I even ordered a bunch of lemons. I, after this, I will probably go into my kitchen and make a bunch of lemonade. Pink lemonade is what they seemed to be illustrating in this comic. And that's generally made by adding other fruits to give it a red color like raspberries, right. um, cherries maybe. And then we go on to the alcoholic side and we have shandies which is a mix of beer and lemonade. So if if Donald had claimed, oh, I had drank too many lemonades, you know, maybe he was drinking a shandy. Yeah, that I, I kind of wondered, you know, as an adult, if that was what it was referencing. And so they're, they're kind of debating um, whether they should make it more sour so he has to drink it slowly or a thick and sweet so it'll fill him up faster. I'm guessing that the sweet one is probably the right one. And oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I love Gladstone's expression as he's pacing just in the same way that Donald was agonizing over what he's gotten himself into. Um, Donald's ridiculous panel where he said he chastises Gladstone for being such a braggart. <laughs> and Daisy chastises him. Look who's talking. Right. And so the nephews have made um, just ridiculous amounts of lemonade and they bring it in and Gladstone gets ready to drink up. And uh, it's very appealing. The colorer chose to, to represent it as pink lemonade. I've got to imagine that it's, it's so that it doesn't look like urine or something. Uh, oh, that's a good idea. But it, it looks very appealing to me. And Gladstone starts guzzling it down in a way that makes Donald uneasy because he's he's making it look easy. And and uh, just for a moment as a kid, I remember I was like, oh, is Gladstone actually going to do this? Oh, yeah. I I was in one of those states where I wasn't sure whether or not I was rooting for him, right? Like he's getting so close to this almost unattainable goal that you start wondering if he's going to make it. And despite the consequences, you're kind of rooting for him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And and this is a really, it's such a weird thing to be so compelling, but I feel like this ridiculous lemonade contest is surprisingly compelling. Yeah. Uh, Donald's is too, and they, but they both have that great element and they both make the reader feel uncomfortable in different ways, you know, because Donald feels so acutely cold. And on this next page, Gladstone is going to start to feel just deeply uncomfortable and and bloated and nauseous as he's drinking more and more and daisy gets in this great little dig that you know that you're doing swell gladstone that's one court down only seven more courts to go and I, i'm going to commit the cardinal podcast sin sarah of of referencing how great the visuals look here on this, <laughs> this uh, auditory medium. But um, but listeners really do need to be reading this as we're talking about it, because Gladstone's expressions are so funny and so great. Oh, his little tongue sticking out in three of the panels.
channels um, and the extra worry lines that have appeared above his eyes. Uh, and then he goes cross-eyed as he's dipping his cup in for another go. Uh, I, I they're really, pretty masterful. I, I laugh every time I read this. And Donald's feeling better and better as Gladstone is getting sicker and sicker. And um, at about three quarts, I'm thinking, he he gives in. He wait, I think it's his cummerbund that he holds up as his white flag of surrender. And, you know, there's there's this celebratory atmosphere on the last page, which is really devoted to Daisy and the nephews. Um, you want to tell us about how you want to take it home, Sarah? Daisy um, starts putting on her adorable coat and her snow boots. And she says, well, my job is done. I'll run along home. Um, Donald is very thankful. And um, then the kids walk her out and they talk about how they're sure they'll learn their lesson. They're going to never brag again. They're never going to make uh, ridiculous contracts with each other. And we hear Donald's voice from inside the house and the kids are looking worried, kind of comically looking up at the speech bubble. Yeah. And you hear Donald say, oh, so I'm not a man because I wouldn't go swimming. And so his manhood, not just, you know, his his ability to go swimming has been challenged, but his manhood. And we all know how fragile Donald Duck is about his manhood. Yeah. And uh, he starts bragging again, saying that uh, next July, he'll climb in a barrel of ice water and sit for an hour. And Gladstone, not to be outdone, he also says, well, I'll, if you do that, I'll drink five gallons of lemonade and I'll do it in half an hour. They've learned nothing. Absolutely nothing. We've, uh, we've, we've etch-a-sketched it back to the beginning, which is, which is what you, I guess what you have to do when you're doing 500 of these stories. You can't have characters learn long-lasting lessons um, which can be infuriating, but it's also, it's a very funny capper to the story, I think. You know, the, the nephews are like, did you say anything about those blowhards being cured? She's like, forget it. And and this is this is very, like, unhealthy behavior for real humans. But, but I think in the context of this story, that is about Donald, who is this fragile, braggadocious, you know, character. It's hilarious. I, I love this story. It cracks me up. Uh, it cracks me up every time. The The artwork in this one, right, because it's one of the 10 pagers, it's not about like these um, adventures and these sweeping vistas or or anything like that. It's about these like intimate expressions and emotions and the, the funny character responses. And I think it's wonderful. This one just cracks me up and I love this story. What, what are your overall thoughts on it? Since I didn't grow up with anything like this, right? Like my, I was raised by my mom. It was my mom and me and my sister. It, when my dad was around, it, it, he was never this kind of masculine. It, it, he was never fragile about his masculinity. And, and so the, it was never normalized to me. And so from a young age, I've always thought, what, what the, that doesn't make any sense. And, and so it's hard for me to see it as funny. I, I understand how it is funny in, in, in abstract sense. Right. Sure. But um, I, myself, I can't see it as funny. I think because I've seen how harmful that kind of fragility 
is in the real world. As always with these comics, I am just there. It's vastly fascinating to me to see that this is what that generation grew up with. And of course, they're the ones having such a hard time as the rest of us are saying, your manhood is not being challenged. You know, what what's going on with this fra- fragile masculinity? And so I... I'm not saying I have the answers or are blaming this kind of humor on that mentality, but I got to wonder about the connection. Obviously, you grew up with it because you were exposed to these from a young age mm-hmm. and you're not somebody who subscribes to that version of masculinity and you can still see it as funny. So right. I'm not saying that there's a path from A to B. But it's something that I do wonder about. Yeah, I I think that's very fair, right? Because like it's you're not saying that this that that this kind of humor or appreciating this kind of humor causes that kind of behavior, but it's it's kind of a, a symptom, right? It's like a side effect. And and you're right. Like I grew I certainly grew up with these as though I was in the 1950s. However, I grew up with culture, other culture that was moving on and advancing. Yeah, if someone if someone threatens my masculinity, my response is going to be to laugh at them. Right. But uh, but yeah, it's it's fascinating from a cultural perspective that you you can tell, you know, this is a caricature, obviously, but you can oh, tell yeah. you can tell that there's some truth in Donald's response. And and you can tell that Barks is poking some degree of fun at it too, right? Like Daisy and the nephews are the ones who are in the right. Barks in this case, and and very rarely <laughs> has Daisy's point of view and the nephew's point of view too. But he agrees with them, right? That this kind of braggadocio is ridiculous. But but he doesn't see it as that unusual, and he does see it as something to be made light of. To, to mine this, to me, very funny, like hilarious <laughs> comedic comedic situation out of. And, you know, how can you do otherwise? There's so many great classic movies that I guess you have to make a decision at some point that you're either going to not enjoy anything from the past at all, or you're going to completely ignore what you've learned so that you can enjoy it, or you're going to just enjoy it the best that you can. But yeah, like I can still I can still enjoy this while understanding that it is toxic, like you've been talking about. And and I'm sure there are people who are like, I can't believe you'd get all analytical with something so slapstick <laughs> meant to be that's meant to just be enjoyed. Cause because people probably hear me enjoying it and they hear you having reservations, but I totally understand your reservations. And I'm I'm very comfortable with enjoying it while acknowledging those reservations, I think is, I think is where I am. I'm reminded of a quote from Lindy West in her book, Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman, Mm -hmm. that says, in a certain light, feminism is just the long, slow realization that the stuff you love hates you. Yeah. And I feel that to my bones in when I revisit stuff from the past, you know, even, you know, 15 years ago, there's stuff where I'm just like, oh, we know better now. Yeah. And if you've read Lindy West, then you kind of understand the mentality of still going back and and trying to balance your nostalgia with this understanding 
and she really informs my approach to this podcast, right? I think a previous version of Sarah would have just complained and, oh, this is terrible. Oh, I can't believe that you would like this. But I think after reading Lindy West, I can balance that right but i can still you know come on here and and look at it from a almost a detached perspective you know and that allows you your love of it and nostalgia and enjoyment but still can be like oh you know daisy was a huge enabler you know what's been really um crystallizing i think for me personally but there are definitely people that i i think must be um upset when i recognize some of the things just problematic in some ways and and in some ways i've I've come to terms that part of my mission with this podcast is actually to like uh, grapple with some of this stuff in a way that I, I want to preserve Karl Barks' legacy. And I think it's really important to actually approach them and contextualize them. I think as like a, a community of fans, we actually do ourselves a big disservice by just plowing forward and pretending that there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way it was at the time. And, and you need to just enjoy it like you did back then, because that's not going to ever build an audience. And it's just going to fall. He's just going to fall down the memory hole because... Um, because unfortunately, those those things, they do stand out and they make it really unapproachable. And so stories like stories like Volcano Valley and Voodoo Hoodoo and uh, Land of the Totem Poles, they, they really have to be reckoned with. Right. You have to, like, recognize them as both great art, but also deeply flawed and, and something that doesn't work going forward. Communities that don't accept that, you know, legends can have flaws. They, their work is not going to endure. So like, I, I really view it as part of my mission is to help these great works endure by contextualizing them. Mm -hmm. so, so we got pretty deep there for, <laughs> for this very silly Christmas story. But um, this is my podcast and I'm all for it. I make my rules and, and I'm, I'm really grateful to you, Sarah, for, uh, processing that part of the story. I, I definitely love this one, love revisiting this one, um, recognize, you know, the part of society that did allow this to be funny and uh, different contexts that it doesn't always work. But, um, but this is a hilarious story. That's great. And I think it's well <laughs> worth, well worth revisiting. Any, any other thoughts? Um, it seems to be pretty irresponsible <laughs> to for Gladstone and and for everybody to have enabled this drinking of two gallons worth right. um, because that is that is gonna kill you. Yeah, because uh, I can't remember. I did look it up, and you can't drink that much of any liquid, right? Like if we understand the ducks to be basically human size, I don't think the human stomach can take two gallons of even water. Right. Yeah, I don't think it's big enough. Yeah. So. So Gladstone's part of the wager is technically impossible, right? That would technically kill him. Donald's only might kill him. Well, I looked that up too. And and ducks can swim in, in any temperature. Their biology prevents them from freezing. They swim in, in all weathers. Sure. That, and that's a fascinating bit of duck biology. But uh, we do have to keep in mind that Donald is... He's a human, right? Like he's he's not he's not an ape descended human. 
but he is a he is a duck descended human. So we got to understand that when he jumps in or he dips his toe in, he's freezing because he's freezing. So I wonder about yeah. humans. I think humans can could probably swim like that for just a very brief moment, right? And then you'd probably need to take some hypothermia protocols like right away. Yeah. But yeah, Bark's, Bark's position at the, is that these characters are, are humans. Every once in a while, he'll fudge it because, you know, you can't do like 500 some of these without without referencing it. But we are meant to think of them as humans. Ah, yeah, I know. It's, it's, I learned a lot about duck anatomy anyway. <laughs> yeah, th- this this is a fascinating story. Just uh, there's it says so much about society and it's also so fun in the specific wagers um, that that they pit against each other. Anything else you wanted to cover? Um. Nope. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, let's see. I will just wish you, what, what did you say it was? The, the festive season? Festive season. Yeah. So a, a very happy festive season, a festive season to all of our listeners. Anything you wanted to say? <laughs> all holidays matter. I haven't figured out a good way to like throw it to the end yet. I need some, mm-hmm. I think you know how podcasts have some shtick. I need some shtick. So I'll, I'll reflect on that. Yeah. Drop us a line. If we've annoyed you with our commentary um, at barks remarks at gmail.com or on the Facebook page um, and uh, join us again for another adventure length one soon and more of the 10 page podcast. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.